Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 40, Azerbaijan Defined. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Define whom we define. Enjoy a white wine spritzer when we enjoy a white wine spritzer. It's a, it's a, it's a. And today I'll be talking about season three, episode five, Homer Defined, which first aired on October the 17th, 1991. I'm going to be talking about Azerbaijan. This oil-rich country on the Caspian Sea officially became independent from the Soviet Union on October 18th, 1991, just one day after Homer Defined was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. And a hello to Ed Sir, who is a new follower of ours on that Twitter, the one with the underscore and informed us, based on our conversations last time out, that Erskine May is available online in full and searchable. Cheers, Ed. Good to hear from you, and thanks for the tip. Yeah, cheers. That is really good knowledge. If you ever want to work out how the British Parliament works, to go through Erskine May online for free and not spend 450 quid or how much or how much it is on a hard copy. Yeah, that's great. Mm. £450 free. Yeah, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Fantastic. So, this first aired on October the 17th, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you ask, and I wish you hadn't this week. What was the UK number one? Well, we've got the same numbers one and two as we did last week. And number three, and this is a bit of good news, is going to be number one soon. Yes, we're nearly out of Brian Adams's purview, but not (laughs) yet. So I regret to say that we have to take number four, which was World in Union, the Rugby World Cup theme by Kiri T. Kanawa. (laughs) And don't think even for a second that I didn't try to find an alternative. We've talked about numbers eight and nine already. I've rejected number five before. And number seven was Julian Lennon who can absolutely fucking fuck off the fucking sanctimonious little fucking shithead. See, this is the problem with a long-running number one. It's created a constipated top ten. There's no <laughs> movement of any use to us. I even considered doing Radio Wall of Sound by Slade, which I believe was their last charting single except for re-releases, but that's down at 33. Um, if we're trying to build a picture of the time... Well, number one, we shouldn't go for a glam rock band from the 70s, but also, unfortunately, we can't avoid this kind of time-bound novelty. So, here goes literally nothing. World in Union is described on Wikipedia, yeah, I'm that lazy about this, as a theme song for the Rugby Union World Cup that attempts to capture the spirit of international friendship, which apparently exemplifies rugby union culture the world over. And here I was thinking Rugby Union was best exemplified by hilarious changing room japes, drink-related dares, and intrinsic homophobia. Though, to be fair, that last point still lingers unwelcomely in a great many sports. Now, in England, we're kind of used to having different songs for different World Cups or sporting events of that type. Um, The football teams conditioned us to expect that. 
But it looks like this one is actually an anthem for the event itself rather than the year the event is happening. It's been tried out again for 1999, 2011, 2015 and 2019 in re-recorded versions, including an assumedly very Welsh version by Bryn Turfel uh, and, and Shirley Bassey, together at last, um, <laughs> and, uh, and a very negatively received one by Paloma Faith. But this is the original insofar as any version can really be called original, because the music is actually a hymnal tune called Thaxted, written by the English composer Gustav Holst. You wouldn't know he was English from that name. Uh, it's named after the village he lived in, uh, and it was adapted from part of his suite, The Planets, specifically the bit about Jupiter. It has soundtracked everything from the patriotic poem I Vow to Thee, My Country, as played at the funerals of both Princess Diana and Margaret Thatcher, so that's a double endorsement there um, <laughs> to the alma mater of various Texan schools, including Ronald Reagan High in San Antonio, and even through to making an appearance in noise rock band Harvey Milk's track, The Anvil Will Fall. Here, though, it has lyrics by Charlie Scarbeck, written especially for the occasion and is recorded by the aforementioned Ms. T. Kanawa, or should I say Dame Ms. T. Kanawa, no relation to Mr. T, from the very rugby appropriate country of New Zealand who is a very well-respected opera singer, and that's it, really. Not my cup of tea, but it clearly floated enough boats to get to number four, so once again, what do I know? The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 12.7 for approximately 11.7 million homes, and 26th for the week in total. It was beaten by The Cosby Show overall, and it tied with In Living Colour as the top Fox show. That seems absolutely bizarre to me. Surely there has to be something they could have used to pick a clear winner. They can't have had exactly the same Nielsen, exactly the same millions of millions of hoes. But there we go. Again, what do I know? Seems like I'm going to be saying that a lot today. The production number is 8F05, and the credited writer is Howard Gewertz. We're going with Gewertz. I actually have no idea how this is pronounced. Of whom we have not yet heard. So let's hear why not. But first, a quick thanks to Ben Baker, with whom I was discussing this episode the other day, for some of this info. Gewurz is a three-time Emmy-nominated producer and writer. Most of his work has been on American sitcoms such as Taxi, Just Shoot Me, Everybody Hates Chris, Oliver Bean, and most notably of all, as mentioned recently on Ben and Phil's fabulous Don't Let's Chart podcast, a show from the very early 80s called Bosom Buddies. <laughs> Tom, does Bosom Buddies ring any bells for you? None whatsoever. Oh, you're in for the opposite of a treat. So check this out. Bosom Buddies starred none other than Tom Hanks, sadly not Autumn Shank, uh, and Peter Scolari in a frankly irresponsible tale of two advertising executives who have to masquerade as women to get a flat in a women-only apartment block. Okay, that sounds yeah, that sounds atrocious. Yes, yes. So one of them then falls for one of the women that lives there, so they introduce themselves as the brothers of the women they are pretending to be, and hilarity ensues, or uh, rather does does not. One, one would suspect. Yeah. Uh, they they made thirty seven episodes of this between nineteen eighty and nineteen eighty two, which to be fair makes it quite short running for an american sitcom um uh, yeah but this this episode is gewurz's only um credited writing uh for the simpsons uh i believe 
I've heard the writers' union rules meant they had to credit a certain number of episodes each season to people outside of the core writing staff. So we will see a fair few uh, one-offs as we carry on going through. But very few of them come back for a second appearance, uh, as is the case here. The chalkboard gag is I will not squeak chalk, written in a delicious irony with squeaking chalk. And the couch gag is an alien is seen on the couch, but disappears into the floor before the family rush in. What happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to read the newspaper as Homer gives the US of A today, the only paper in America that's not afraid to tell the truth that everything is just fine. The old once over. Meanwhile, Bart is writing Millhouse's birthday card, a crusty branded product featuring a joke about McGumbo's that is not age appropriate. On the school bus, it becomes apparent that Bart has been told that Millhouse wasn't having a party, but he has had one and everyone else went. Bart is shocked and forgets to get off the bus. Meanwhile, we see some slices of life at the plant as Smithers shows Burns his dog and Homer searches for a donut with purple in. The filling from said donut splatters on his safety command console, obscuring a vital dial. Otto just about realises Bart is still on the bus before he goes down Mexico way and drops him back at school with a few words of discouragement. But worse things are afoot for, well, everyone, really. The obscured dial fails to alert Homer to an unrequested fission surplus, or to you and I, the beginnings of a meltdown. Homer opines that when they look up stupid in the dictionary, there'll be a picture of him. And he has a vision of such. Burns gives an interview and plans how to save himself, both from the meltdown and the embarrassment of Smithers' declaration of love, whilst Homer presses a button at random and saves the plant. After this, he has a vision of his picture in the dictionary next to the word lucky. After Kemp Brockman, consummate journalist that he is, has promised to be more trusting and less vigilant in the future, a job in the British press awaits then. And whilst Burns enjoys a white wine spritzer, which will later be Flanders' drink of choice in Vegas, he opts to give the employee of the month to Homer, breaking Smithers' epic run of wins. Homer receives a plaque, a ham, the adulation of his peers, and a celebratory phone call from Magic Johnson. But his conscience is starting to get to him. And when his family see his plaque, he has a vision of his picture in the dictionary next to the word fraud. Backtracking slightly, Bart's now become aware that Milhouse's mother has forbidden Milhouse from being his friend, believing him to be a bad influence, to which Bart responds that he's told him never to listen to his mother. Clearly no problem there. Homer then has further problems with the admiration that Lisa now has for her supposed hero of a father, a constant reminder that he merely winged it. Unfortunately, he can't hide for long, as Burns promises to take him to visit Shelbyville's nuclear power plant, this one run by Burns' rival, Aristotle Amadopoulos, ostensibly to see if he can motivate the workers there, but mainly to rub in how much better this hero worker is than anyone Ari has working for him. Seeing that Bart is lonely when he resorts to playing Monopoly with Maggie, Marge decides to step in and talk to Luanne, Milhouse's mother. While she's still aware that Bart is a problematic child in some, well, many respects, he's still her special little guy, and she goes to bat for him. And it works. And the two friends are reunited by the end of the episode. Homer is panicking about his motivational speech and finds little good advice at most to the surprise of nobody. When the time comes, there is another near meltdown. Homer is initially relieved until he is pushed to the front of the queue to sort the problem out. He has to confess that he pressed a button at random, but does so again and again averts disaster. Reports get out about this and everyone from Chief Wigan to Barney to Magic Johnson 
is using the phrase pulling a homer to describe succeeding despite idiocy. And this makes it to the dictionary and thus is homer finally defined. So it's not just a clever title. Exactly. Felt this was a bit of a step down from uh, Bart the Murderer, uh, the previous episode, but it's still it's still good. It's still mm. like uh, well above season one, most of season two good for me, I would say. Mm-hmm. Everything's just just falling into place a bit more. Yeah, definitely. Every it seems like everyone's actually got their proper roles now, and yeah, there's some good jokes in it. Um, I I like the one about the one where Professor Frank says that uh, anyone within this radius will die immediately. Anyone in the radius just outside, which we're in, will die a much slower, more painful death. <laughs> Always there with good news, isn't he? It's uh, mm-hmm. heartening to see. So let's hear about some character debuts. We've got Aristotle Abadopoulos, who is played by John Lovitz, which is obviously a highlight for me. Um, Clearly meant as a nod to Aristotle Onassis, the Greek shipping magnate perhaps best known for marrying Jacqueline Kennedy after John F. Kennedy's assassination. The character exists only as another rich guy to be a rich guy next to Burns, but will appear again very soon in Season 3, Episode 17, Homer at the Bat where he'll actually be voiced by Dan Castellanata rather than Lovitz, despite the character being specifically written here to Lovitz's style of delivery. Now, Tom, I'm painfully aware that Aristotle Onassis is much more in your territory than mine. So tell me, do you have any Onassis facts for us? Well, not really, because you've got down the two things that you really need to know about Aristotle Onassis. One is that he was a Greek shipping magnate, one of the richest people in the world, and two, that he married... Jackie Kennedy. But as a little bit of a pop quiz, after uh, Jackie Kennedy married uh, Aristotle Onassis, she became known as Jackie O, Jackie Onassis, hence why Lisa is eating a bowl of Jackie O's in the previous episode. But do you know uh, Jackie Kennedy slash Jackie Onassis's maiden name? It was Bouvier, wasn't it? Yes. 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 Very good. Which hence Marge why... Bouvier. Yeah, yeah. There you go. They're all links. Along with the, all the Quimby stuff, there's quite a few Kennedy ref- references in The Simpsons. Um, oh, yes. So according to a few sources, this is also the first appearance of Luanne Van Houten, Milhouse's mother, as voiced by Pamela Hayden. I feel like I'm sure we've seen her before, but now that I'm binging the latest series, I can't remember where I saw who when, frankly. So I was going to go back and check, but I got distracted. Then I had a couple of beers and then I fell asleep. So we'll, we'll just say that I agree with this and leave it at that. Luad is of Italian descent and is originally from Shelbyville, a fact that tears her husband Kirk up as revealed in Season 6, Episode 24, Lemon of Troy. She is variously depicted as Marge's friend by default, a frustrated and snippy wife, and later a free and single lady jumping back into the dating pool after an argument over Pictionary leads, as it always does, to divorce in Season 8, Episode 6, A Millhouse Divided. After several seasons dating former American gladiator Pyro, including cheating on him with fellow former American gladiator Gyro, she and Kirk were reconciled in Season 17, Episode 3, Millhouse of Sand and Fog, and remarried in Season 19, Episode 6, Little Orphan Millie. We also welcome two more celebs to the Simpsonverse. Magic Johnson and, no less excitingly I'm sure you'll agree, Chick Hearn. Let's start with Irvin Johnson Jr., who picked up his sorcerous nickname at age 15 after a stunning season in high school basketball. Imagine arriving in top-level sports 
And that's already your brand, Magic Johnson. He was a made man in basketball, but his achievements speak for themselves. Uh, I don't know much about basketball, but apparently all of these things are good. He's had three NBA MVP awards, nine NBA finals appearances, 12 All-Star games, and 10 All-NBA first and second team nominations. He led the league in regular season assists four times and is the NBA's all-time leader in average assists per game at 11.2. He was incredibly famous at the time and will forever be linked with the LA Lakers team who won five championships during his original 12-year stint from 1979 to 1991. Hang on. The stint ended in 1991, you say? Well, this is a really pivotal time for Johnson and, and not for good reasons. As on November the 7th, 1991, a mere three weeks after this episode aired, he held a press conference to announce his immediate retirement from basketball due to his then recent diagnosis as HIV positive. He would, however, play in the end of season All-Star game, despite protests from other players who felt they would be at risk should he suffer a wound. And also... Uh, went to the 1992 Olympics as part of the USA Dream Team that swept all before them in Barcelona, although he didn't play very much in that due to other injuries. He also actually came back to the Lakers for a season in 1996 before a two-year period playing in Sweden's top basketball league in 1999 and 2000. Since his diagnosis, he has used his position to raise awareness of HIV and to advocate against the stigma of being HIV positive and is still alive and healthy at the age of 60. And in terms of his performance here, the Simpsons team travelled to his house to record his lines, but their equipment didn't work initially, and they feared they'd lose the opportunity to feature him. But it sprang to life, and that's about all I can find out about that, really. Finally, Francis Doyle Hearn, nicknamed Chick after a locker room prank that involved a dead chicken, was the LA Lakers play-by-play commentator for 40 years, including an unbroken stretch of games... From November the 21st, 1965 until December the 16th, 2001, he did not miss one L.A. Lakers match for over 36 years. Before passing away in 2002, he released a rap single and did voice work for several other television shows, usually as himself or a generic commentator. And this included fellow Klasky Supo animated show Rugrats. Nice. So you ready for some did you knows? Go for it. Magic Johnson was the first professional athlete to play themselves on The Simpsons. We'll be seeing about nine more of those in an episode very soon, of course. Otto is again singing the instrumental Frankenstein by Edgar Winter. And finally, the episode has been censored in some showings, as it originally contained two instances of the word... Oh, cover your ears, Tom, and you might want to get the bleeper ready for this one. (laughs) Ass. Oh, yeah. One when Bart says... Bad influence, my ass, and the other from Mr. Burns with a kiss my sorry ass goodbye. These have been censored in various ways, including jump cutting very amateurishly across the words or changing one or both of them to but. So apparently from eyewitnesses in the first airing, Bart says but and Burns says ass. But the first repeat had Bart saying ass and Burns saying but. So there's at least three versions of this episode out there for the eagle-eared. Hmm. Which is quite impressive, seeing as Mr. Burns says the word breasts quite openly. Yeah, 
yeah i've i've always found censorship in the simpsons to be really really inconsistent and it probably gets even more inconsistent when it gets over to britain and sky and channel four have both got different ways of cutting it as well so you, you just wind up with a mess in the end one thing i will say for for disney plus all of the episodes that i've watched so far have been presented without cuts okay okay uh yeah I, i've i've noticed that as well i did however today notice what did disney plus have done to the film splash Oh, well, what have they done to Splash? I don't know if you've seen this. Now, 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 I'm not massively familiar with the film Splash. I believe it's about um, uh, a, a mermaid who turns into a human, but it's nothing like The Little Mermaid. It's a bit racier than that for a Disney film. It's all actual people. And there's a bit where the woman who is, uh, at the time, naked, turns around, r- runs off to the sea, and in the original, you see her ass. And in this new version, they have uh, used CGI to uh, extend her hair so that it covers the offending area. And it's done really badly. And she just looks like Captain Caveman. Yeah, oh, you're kidding me. It's, it's like taking the guns out of E.T. It's, it's unnecessary revisionism. Like, who cares if you see an arse for a bit? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, but there we go. Well, on that sour note, that bum note, if you will. Uh, I shall hand over to to yourself. Homer Defined is done. Let's get some history in us. Okay, right. So Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, it's a host of countries that became independent after the breakup of the Soviet Union. In fact, anyone who remembers Eddie Izzard's 1994 stand-up definite article will at least be familiar with the name of the country, as he kept using it as a punchline in his surrealist humour. Don't remember that. I'm I'm off shopping. I'm off to Azerbaijan. So, but in recent years, Azerbaijan has come more to the forefront of world events with the capital Baku hosting the 2015 European Games, the 2012 Eurovision Song Contest, and from 2017, a Formula One Grand Prix. And I'll do what I should always do at the start of of my bits and say that I am going to mangle some words. I'm going to mangle some Azarian Russian names. I really am. So anyway, so let's start with the geography of Azerbaijan. Now, usually when I go over a country's geography and what's around it, it's simple enough. However, it's not so simple with Azerbaijan, so we might be here a while. Azerbaijan lies on the west coast of the Caspian Sea, with the capital Baku set on the Absheron Peninsula. Don't worry, it's just a name. Directly north of Azerbaijan is the Russian Republic of Dagestan, with its capital of Makhachkala also being on the Caspian. If the name rings a bell, it's probably because the city plays host to the football club Anzi Makhachkala, who came to prominence in 2011 after being bought by the billionaire Suleiman Kerimov. He spent hundreds of millions bringing Gus Hiddink as manager and stellar players such as Samuel Eto'o, Roberto Carlos and Chris Samba. <laughs> Remember him. So anyway, back to Azerbaijan. So to the northwest is Georgia, another former Soviet state, and one that I've already talked about in episode 31, Brush with Georgia. Directly to the south is the Islamic Republic of Iran, which, of course, before the Islamic Revolution of 1979, was known as Persia. Now then we get to Azerbaijan's western border, and this is where things get very complicated indeed. It's bordered by another former Soviet Republic, this time Armenia, but it takes some explaining. So traveling west from Baku, before you get to the border with Armenia, you'd reach the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh, all known as Artsakh. 
Now, Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war over it, and these days the status of the Armenian majority region is still unclear. West of Nagorno-Karabakh is the region of Kalbajar-Lachin, and then you get to the Armenian border. But that's not all. After travelling about 30 kilometres through Armenia, you get to Azerbaijan again with the exclave of Nachavan. And go west from Nachavan and you're in Iran again, apart from a very narrow eight kilometre strip in the northwest of Nachavan, which shares a border with Turkey. So, t- so Turkey and Azerbaijan do share a border, a very short one, but it is there. God, I wouldn't have thought that, even to look mm. at a map. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get from Nachavan to the rest of Azerbaijan, you can't go as the crow flies because that's Armenia, and Armenia and Azerbaijan don't get on. So instead, you have to get on a highway that hugs the border in Iran and go round that way. International politics, eh? Anyway, that's the rather complex geography. What about the history? Well, as you might have guessed, for a country that's sandwiched between Iran and Russia, Azerbaijan has been ruled by dozens of empires over the centuries. One thing that stands out about Azerbaijan, though, is its prehistory. Around 60 kilometres to the southwest of Baku is the Gubastan National Park. This park is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and plays host to thousands of rock paintings and petroglyphs depicting prehistoric life, with the oldest going back around 40,000 years. It's really quite something. The earliest known inhabitants were the Scythians, followed by the Iranian Medes, who were taken over by the Achaemenid Empire around 550 BC. With them, they brought the religion of Zoroastrianism, a faith where fire plays an important role. Alexander the Great conquered the area in the 4th century BC, and it later became part of the Seleucid Empire. This time also saw the rise of Caucasian Albania, and this is a little confusing. The Albania we know today is a small country in the Balkans, home to the child spy Adil Zosa. However, the Caucasian Albanians were a different people entirely, coming from the Caucasus region. They established an independent kingdom, adopted Christianity as their state religion, and were made a vassal state of the Sassanid Persians. Following the birth of Islam, the Umayyad Caliphate built up a huge empire and conquered the Sassanids, including Caucasian Albania. Obviously, they brought their religion with them, and today Azerbaijan is mostly Islamic, and most of the Muslims follow the Shia branch of the religion. This time also saw the emergence of Shirvan, a historic region that forms part of Azerbaijan. Shirvan was ruled by the Shirvan Shahs from 800 AD until 1607, but they were almost always vassals of another empire. The Caucasus were on the fringes of the caliphate, and the eventual decline of the Umayyads led to a power vacuum that was occupied by various local dynasties. However, in the 11th century, a power arrived that would leave a lasting impression on Azerbaijan, the Seljuk Turks. These people came in from Central Asia, conquered Persia, and got as far west as modern-day Turkey. They brought with them the Turkic language that modern Azerbaijan is descended from. The Turkic links between modern-day Turkey and Azerbaijan remain to this day, and it's no coincidence that the flags of both countries feature a star between the points of a crescent moon. In the 13th century, Azerbaijan, like so many countries in the region, fell foul of the Mongol Empire. Cities were destroyed, and by 1236 the whole Caucasus region was under the control of Ogadai Khan, Genghis Khan's third son. In 1380, the Emperor Tamerlane conquered the region, and incorporated it into his Timurid empire that ran as far west as Turkey and as far east as Delhi in India. In 1501, the Iranian Safavid empire 
led by Ishmael I, conquered the region and sacked Baku, imposing Shia Islam onto the Sunni population, sometimes committing massacres. In the next few centuries, the Caucasus played host to continuing conflicts between the Shia Safavids and the Ottoman Empire, who practiced Sunni Islam. The Ottomans briefly occupied Azerbaijan in the 18th century, from 1722 to 1736. Following this, the Russians kicked in. During the reign of Peter the Great, the emperor who founded St. Petersburg and greatly enhanced Russia's military prestige, was looking to expand the reach of the Russian Empire to the south. He went to war with Persia and took control of the east coast of the Caspian Sea, including Baku. This didn't last, however, and they later ceded the region to the Persian leader Nadir Shah. You know, he was an immensely powerful ruler. After Shah was murdered, his empire collapsed and the region fell under the control of various Khanates. In the early 19th century, the Russians moved back in, but their occupation was delayed for a year due to a rather strange incident. The Russians had organised a ceremony where the military leader of the invasion force, General Pavel Sitsyanov, would receive the keys to the city from a representative of the Khan of Baku. Trouble was, during the ceremony, the representative pulled out a gun and shot Sitsyanov to death. The Russians oh. retreat. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, a bit of a breach of protocol, really. It, it is a bit, is a bit. Yeah. And now, Your Excellency, the keys to the city. <laughs> Death. So the Russians retreated and wouldn't be back until next year. With the Russians in control of the Caucasus, things stabilised and it coincided with the utilisation of oil. The oil fields of Azerbaijan were known for centuries. And in 1882, Ludwig Nobel, Alfred Nobel's brother, oh. set up... Yep, set up shop there. The oil industry boomed, and by the time of the First World War, the region was producing 15% of the world's oil. The end of the First World War completely changed the world order. Azerbaijan and its neighbours no longer had the Ottoman Empire to the south, and the chaos of the 1917 Russian Revolution meant the Russians were no longer in control either. Armenia had just experienced the horrors of the Armenian genocide at the hands of the Ottomans. Armenia, Georgia and Azerbaijan got together and formed the Trans-Caucasian Democratic Federative Republic, but this barely bothered the world atlases as it was dissolved after just five weeks. Ooh. Azerbaijan declared their independence on May 28, 1918, but the formation was far from straightforward. Baku was under the control of a small group of communists known as the Baku Commune, who had seized power after massacring thousands in the events known as the March Days. This group was replaced by the Central Caspian Dictatorship, an anti-Soviet force backed by the British, of all people. Nice. Shortly afterwards, the army of Azerbaijan, backed up by remnants of the Ottoman army, removed the dictatorship and declared Azerbaijan a secular democracy, the first of its kind in the Muslim world. Its brief independence was marked by territory skirmishes and ethnic conflicts with Armenia, especially over the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. However, following the Russian Revolution of 1917, Russia entered a state of civil war. By 1920, the Red Army were in the ascendancy and they set their sights on the Caucasus. They invaded Azerbaijan on April 28th of that year and approximately 20,000 Azeris died resisting them. With the Soviets in control, Stalin moved to placate Turkey, who he wanted an alliance with. To this extent, the region of Nagorno-Karabakh was incorporated into the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic as an autonomous region, despite the fact that the majority of the population was Armenian. The area has been a flashpoint for Armenian and Azerbaijani ethnic tensions ever since. As part of the Soviet Union, Azerbaijan suffered terribly under the Red Terror of Stalin's purges. 
During World War II, the oil fields of Azerbaijan played a key role and were a prominent target for the Wehrmacht following the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Over the course of the war, approximately 400,000 Azeris would die and 800,000 fought in the Red Army. That's a huge chunk of the population back then. In the 60s, the Azeri oil industry went into decline after onshore stocks were depleted. Offshore drilling in the Caspian Sea wasn't considered cost-effective, and Soviet authorities diverted funds to develop oil fields elsewhere in the Union. Haydar Aliyev was appointed by Moscow to revive Azerbaijan's fortunes. Aliyev is a very important figure in Azerbaijan's history, as we shall see. He was even made a Politburo member in 1982, putting him firmly in the Soviet elite. However, he was removed after Gorbachev came to power as he was seen as an old Soviet who didn't agree with the policies of Glasnost and Perestroika. During most of the time of the existence of the Soviet Union, the Soviet authorities were able to suppress conflicts between Armenia and Azerbaijan by force. However, in the later years of Gorbachev's rule, Soviet authority waned and these tensions came to a head in 1987, when Armenia started to demand the incorporation of Nagorno-Karabakh into the Armenian SSR. This was accompanied by pogroms against the Armenian population of Azerbaijani cities, and hundreds were killed. With Gorbachev's reforms, other political parties were allowed, and the Popular Front of Azerbaijan came to prominence. They led a protest against Soviet rule on January 20th, 1990, which was put down by Soviet troops who killed 132 demonstrators. Meanwhile, violence against Armenians continued, and the fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh escalated into full-scale war. The crisis of the political situation in the USSR culminated with the August coup, an attempt by communist hardliners to remove Gorbachev from power and reverse his reforms, as we covered in episode 35, Soviet Feud. Azerbaijan declared its independence from the USSR on August 30th, 1991, even though the president of the Azerbaijan SSR, Ayaz Mutalibov, had expressed his support for the coup. Azerbaijan held its first presidential elections on September 8th, where Mutalibov was the sole candidate. When Azerbaijan formally accepted its declaration of independence on October 18th, 1991, the day after Home Defined was first aired, the Azerbaijan Communist Party was officially dissolved and Mutalibov became president, despite being head of said Communist Party. Which makes a lot of sense. The Mutalibov presidency did not last long, with the ongoing conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh being his downfall. The Armenians, supported covertly by Russia, were on top of the war, with atrocities being committed by both sides, including the Kajali massacre, where hundreds of Azeris were killed by Armenian forces. Mutalibov was forced to resign by the National Assembly and put on trial by Azerbaijan's Supreme Council. They reached their verdict on May 14th, 1992, and it was a whitewash for Mutalibov. The court concluded that he had no responsibility for the Kajali massacre, and they even reversed his resignation, making him president again. However, the... (laughs) Fair enough. However, the armed forces of the Azerbaijan Popular Front moved in and forced Mutalibov to flee to Moscow. So he's president for an evening, basically. They dissolved the Supreme Council and scheduled new elections for June 1992. This election was won by Abdulfaz Elichabi, the leader of the Popular Front. The only other candidate was a chap called Nizamin Suleimanov of the Democratic Union of the Intelligentsia of Azerbaijan Party. Oh, fancy. Exactly. Very fancy. So unfortunately for Elichabi, he suffered a similar fate to Mutalibov and was removed by the army in a military coup. During his presidency, the former Soviet leader Haydar Aliyev came to prominence in Nachevan, 
remember it's that bit of Armenia that's separate from the rest and borders Turkey. His popularity there gave him a platform in Baku, and he took over after Elicebi was deposed. He organised a referendum on Elicebi's leadership, where he simply asked everyone, is the president doing a good job? Only 2% of the respondents said yes. So it was like he was playing a really bad game of SimCity. So Haydar Aliyev's rule was cemented in the presidential election of 1993, and he moved to take full control of the country. His political opponents were arrested. The military police were accused of plotting a coup against him, and they were disbanded. And the Speaker of the Azerbaijan Parliament went into self-imposed exile. Despite all this, 1994 saw the end of the Nagorno-Karabakh War, with all sides adhering to a ceasefire that has mostly held to this day, although Armenia and Azerbaijan technically remain at war. A little bit like the situation in North and South Korea. Aliyev also opened Azerbaijan up to the West, signing the so-called Deal of the Century that opened up Azerbaijani oil to Western markets. This brought a huge amount of wealth into the country, but corruption and nepotism ensured that the wealth distribution was hugely unequal. Haydar Aliyev remained in power until 2003, when he collapsed on stage and died while in intensive care in the USA. Before he died, presidential elections were held to determine who his successor should be. The leading candidate was the prime minister. He was Ilhan Aliyev, and he just happened to be Haydar Aliyev's son. So, you know, no nepotism at work there. The election was deemed neither free nor fair by international observers, with vote rigging and an impartial election authority all being noted. Ilhan Aliyev has remained in power to this day. In 2009, Azerbaijanis were asked to vote on a series of constitutional reforms which all passed, including ones which abolished presidential term limits and restricted the freedom of the press. Ah. Mm -hmm. The 2010 parliamentary election gave Aliyev an unprecedented level of power, as for the first time none of the major opposition parties won any seats. The next year saw protests against Aliyev's authoritarian rule, with hundreds arrested. Since then, the authorities have maintained control, easily able to put down any protests as and when they occur. Of course, this is vastly different to the image Azerbaijan would like to present of itself to the world. As well as the events I talked about earlier, Azerbaijan played host to the 2019 UEFA Cup final, a ridiculous affair that saw fans from Arsenal and Chelsea, both London clubs, try to make the 6,500-mile round trip to see the game. The world is also keeping an eye on Nagorno-Karabakh, now going by the name of Artsakh, as clashes erupted in 2016, with border skirmishes continuing to this day. So that's fun. Also, I think I need to point out that Azerbaijan is allied with Turkey, so it denies the Armenian genocide. And on that rather depressing note, I will hand you back to Gareth, where he will no doubt tell me that Azerbaijan made an appearance on The Simpsons in that Winter Olympic episode that I haven't seen. I was actually about to mention that. That's, uh, but I found something else. So yes, they they are one of the uh, one of the representatives in the Winter Olympics in Vancouver in season twenty one, episode twelve, Boy Meets Curl. Uh, but that's not the only link. So we have also Lisa representing Azerbaijan in the Model UN. Uh, in not the one everyone remembers the model UN from, which is the Lord of the Flies parody, but uh, season 20, episode 9, Lisa the Drama Queen. So a blink and you'll miss it reference there. The one I found the most interesting thus far is that in um, 2013, um, Russia played Azerbaijan 
in in football. They only needed a Russia only needed a point to qualify for the World Cup. And the action on the pitch was compared to that as seen in um, season nine, episode five, the cartridge family <laughs> center passes to mid mid holds it, holds it, holds it, passes to mid. So yeah, there we go. So three, three Azerbaijan Simpsons connections. I'm only sorry. I couldn't find more. <laughs> well, I've got some flag stuff for you. Oh, fantastic. So, so the flag of Azerbaijan is not a great design because, as the rule of tincture tells you, you don't put colour on colour, and Azerbaijan has colour on colour on colour. So it's a horizontal tricolour with the top stripe being blue to represent Turkic heritage. Then there's red to represent progress, and the bottom stripe is green to represent Islam. In the centre is a crescent moon, there once again to represent Islam, and next to that is an eight-pointed star. The exact meaning of the points of the star is debated, with some people saying that they stand for the eight Turkic peoples of Azerbaijan, while others say that it's each point is for a letter of the word Azerbaijan in Arabic, which apparently has eight letters in Arabic. Also, the flag of Nagorno-Karabakh slash Artsakh is interesting. So it's the flag of Armenia with some white blocks in the fly taken out to show that Artsakh is part of Armenia, but separate from it. It's, it, it's a really interesting way to put a flag together. It's worth checking out. I, I do like the ones that have a, uh, a definite story to how they're uh, composed, though. So at least it's got that. I know it goes against the rule of tincture, and, I, and I'm I'm all for not doing that. Don't get me wrong. You've 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 convinced me on that uh, on that note. But uh, yeah, I'll. I'll I might let them off just for the story. <laughs> I think we also need to say thanks again to Tim Worthington for making a, an appearance on, on Mitch Ben's Confined to Barracks podcast, where he gave us a very kind word indeed. So cheers, Tim. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah. And on that note, don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. Check out our 90s playlist on Spotify and check out my reviews of The Simpsons in a tweet per episode at Invader Ace One. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with you in two weeks' time. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.